Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Let's get moving with Maria. Inspiration to spend a few minutes each day to get moving on the small things that can make a big difference in your life. With me today, Danielle Forbes, hypertension specialist with HEAL program at the Utah Department of Health, and Dr. Barry Stoltz. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Utah Medical Center and a consultant for the Department of Health and Human Services. And thanks to both of you for being with me today. You're welcome. Thanks, Maria, for having us. I've asked you to be here today because we're looking at a a new study that was published uh, by the American Heart Association that made kind of a slight link to napping and hypertension. So I wanted to talk about the study for just a minute and maybe dispel any myths or talk exactly what the study was focusing on that may not pertain to all of us. So maybe Dr. Stoltz, you could start out. You took a look at this study and, and, and tell me what you think. Well, maybe let me put a little bit of perspective on this first, if that's okay. I think the first thing that our listeners would want to know is that we have a new definition of hypertension uh, over the last several years. Uh, Hypertension is now defined as an accurately, and I emphasize accurately measured blood pressure of 130 over 80 or higher. Uh, And that has to be confirmed by an accurately measured, and I again emphasize accurately, accurately measured out-of-office blood pressure. Uh, And so that's what everybody in the public needs to remember. By this definition, 50% of adult Americans are now defined as having hypertension. That's a huge number. Hypertension has multiple causative factors, and they include, among others, advancing age, overweight and obesity, increased diet sodium, low diet potassium, and genetic susceptibilities. And the importance of those individual factors varies from one person to another. But over the last 30 to 40 years, it's also been demonstrated that some pathologic disorders of sleep which lead to excessive daytime sleepiness, such as obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, insomnia, Uh, these factors also increase the risk of developing hypertension and cardiovascular disease. More recently, in the last 10 to 15 years, there have been epidemiologic observational studies of how sleep duration, especially too little sleep and possibly too much sleep, might affect blood pressure and the development of hypertension. So this current study about nap frequency and hypertension does not represent a new concept or a new finding. 
There have been multiple earlier studies that have investigated sleep duration and hypertension, including napping. So this study almost vilified napping because it kind of made a link between napping and hypertension. So maybe, Danielle, what would you say the bottom line is for folks that are listening that maybe take frequent naps? I think the biggest takeaway for folks who do take multiple naps um, or frequent naps throughout the week or, you know, maybe a couple of days, the biggest takeaway is there's probably an underlying issue as far as why you're needing to take the naps. And I think an important thing to realize is that you need to get enough sleep, which is recommended to be seven hours a night um, in order to be able to function and, you know, not feel so tired the next day or throughout the day in general. And so if you're needing to take naps, I think it's important to, you know, maybe check in with yourself and also check in with your physician and um, share this concern so that you can maybe start to look at an underlying issue, which could be the insomnia that Dr. Stoltz had mentioned or other sleep conditions, but it also could be stress as a factor. Stress can impact many different aspects of your life. And I think it's important to realize that you need to um, make sure that you're just ultimately getting enough sleep, (coughs) trying to stay stress-free and um, really just focusing on your overall health. Right. But Dr. Stoltz, we don't want to vilify naps. If you need a nap, it's not going to hurt your health to take a nap. I would say that that is the most likely scenario here. My message would be know your blood pressure for sure. And if you are having uh, excessive daytime sleepiness and it requires you to take a nap, just as Danielle said, see your provider, your clinician. Let's talk for a second about stress, because in throughout the pandemic, I've heard people talk about how they are mentally exhausted. Could that be leading people also to need to maybe take more naps? I think if stress is affecting your sleep, uh, then it's going to make you uh, sleepier during the day and you're going to have to take a nap. But I don't think we have evidence to tell people stop taking naps because it's going to make your blood pressure go up. I don't think that would be the situation here. Okay, so let's turn it around just a little bit. If people are taking, you know, one or two naps a day, should they be looking at maybe there are some underlying factors? I mean, is this something that should be assigned to them that maybe something else is going on? Yes, I think if you're having to take a lot of naps, uh, there may be a message there. Uh, and again, I think the messages that we like to pass is know your blood pressure, see your clinician. Know your would, blood pressure. I'm going to be honest right now. I don't know my blood pressure. What is the best way for people to simply do this if they aren't going to have a physical, say, in the near future? Maybe, Danielle, you could address that. There are many ways that you can make sure you're getting um, an accurate reading. Uh, The best would be to obviously go to your primary care provider, but there's also blood pressure cuffs available in pharmacies. Um, You can also purchase one on your own to 
take your own blood pressure that way. Um, so there's different options, but the best way to get the most accurate would be to go to your primary care. Dr. Stoltz, what would be some other um, things that would are precursors to hypertension or high blood pressure that people should be aware of, not just maybe whether need, they need to take a nap or not? Yeah, I think the, the key things uh, are kind of like we mentioned before. Uh, I think if people uh, are in advancing in age, if people are overweight or obese, if people have too much sodium in their diet or too little potassium in their diet, and potassium is basically fruits and vegetables, or they have genetic susceptibility to hypertension in that one or both parents or a sib, brother or sister has hypertension, that increases your need to know your blood pressure. I would say that there, uh, I agree with Danielle, it is uh, reasonable to measure your blood pressure at home, but you have to remember a couple of things. The majority of blood pressure cuffs on the market have not been validated for accuracy and many are inaccurate. The American Medical Association has a list on their website of validated home blood pressure devices that can be used. Second, the techniques of measuring your home blood pressure have to be done very accurately or the home blood pressure measurements are likely to be falsely high. So again, Danielle's emphasis, see your clinician is always the best uh, advice that there is. Do most people who have high blood pressure know that they have high blood pressure? No, we know from the studies that have been done from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey that's done every two years in the United States, we know that probably 30% of hypertensive Americans are not aware that they have hypertension. And since the uh, definition of hypertension has decreased from 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury or higher to 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury or higher, that number is probably more along the lines of 40% of hypertensive Americans don't know that they have hypertension. What is the first step once somebody has realized that they fall into this category? What should be the first thing that they do to try to reduce this problem? I think the first thing to do once you realize that you do have high blood pressure is um, to look at lifestyle factors and lifestyle changes that you can make um, before going on to medication or anything like that. Obviously, you need to consult with your physician and make a plan that way. But I think that looking at your diet and making sure that you're getting enough healthy foods, um, so the fruits and vegetables, and also making sure that you're not having foods with high sodium or high salt um, contents. And then also making sure that, you know, you're getting up and moving each day. Um, it's recommended to do about 30 minutes a day. And that could be just simply going for a walk or, you know, hitting the gym, going for a bike ride. Um, and then 
again, also making sure to look at your stress and trying to reduce stress levels. Dr. Stoltz, what would you add? Uh, I guess what I would add is uh, lifestyle uh, changes are very important. They're often not adequate in themselves for many patients. And so seeing your clinician, deciding on where your cardiovascular risk is, and then for many patients who are already at higher cardiovascular risk, we start lifestyle and pharmacologic drug therapy at the same time. For patients at very low cardiovascular risk, it may be very reasonable to try lifestyle modification for a period of three to six months. But if you're still hypertensive after three to six months of lifestyle change, even those low-risk patients should be strongly considered for antihypertensive therapy. What are the effects if they don't get that therapy? Well, hypertension is the leading risk factor globally for mortality. It is the leading risk factor globally for cardiovascular disease. And to have uh, basically 50% of Americans hypertensive, we are basically putting 50% of Americans at substantial risk if their blood pressure is not controlled. When we talk about exercise, it seems a lot easier to measure than diet. Um, I think we can all say, oh, I'm going to eat better, but I'm not sure that people understand what is the best diet for them. I mean, they know they shouldn't be eating a lot of sugar and they shouldn't be eating a lot of fats, but really what is a healthy diet beyond that? So a healthy diet beyond that is, uh, as Danielle has said, low in sodium and high in potassium. 80% of diet sodium is not what you add to cooking or what you add at the table. It's what is already in the processed food that you buy from the grocery store. So reading labels to figure out how much sodium is there and trying to limit your sodium to 2.3 grams per day or less is very important. Trying to get six to eight servings of fruits and vegetables each day to get enough potassium or at least three servings of fruits and vegetables per day will absolutely lower your blood pressure. Exercise has many, many benefits, but exercise benefits on blood pressure are less than the benefits of a good, healthy diet. And then there's the big one, or probably for a lot of us, the most difficult, and that would be stress. How, how do we go about, maybe Danielle, you could take a look at this one. Uh, what do you think are the best ways for us to maybe reduce our stress levels? Yeah, I think many Americans um, tend to have higher stress levels uh, just due to family, um, job, uh, outside lifestyle um, impacts. So I think that if you're working and you're starting to notice that like your stress level might be rising, it's a good time to take a break, you know, get away from your computer, get away from work if you can for about 10 minutes, just try and cool yourself off a little bit. And I think um, family and like lifestyle impacts 
also those can be much more difficult to um, manage just because like income can be a huge stress factor. And with inflation and everything, um, many Americans are stressed out and um, worrying financially. So I think that, you know, creating a budget in that instance would be a good thing to um, set in stone and follow. But there's some modifiable and changeable areas that can impact stress, but then also um, some that can't be managed and, you know, changed as easily. So just making sure that you're monitoring your stress and um, overall trying to improve that is the best way. Dr. Stoltz, what have you seen during the pandemic when it comes to people and hypertension? Well, there are several studies that have been published about this very issue. Uh, and the suggestion uh, or the findings in those studies, which are kind of preliminary studies, are that hypertension control rates decreased a little bit during the pandemic. How much of that is due to not seeing your uh, clinician uh, and how much might be due to the stress that uh, Danielle has described, I don't think any, any of us know for sure. But during the pandemic, hypertension control rates uh, diminished some. Okay. Anything that you would like to add, Dr. Stoltz, to what Danielle was saying about um, things that can pe- people things that people can do to reduce their stress level? I think that's a tough question. Uh, I I think that's going to be one that is going to be highly variable from one person to another, depending on those sources of stress. And again, uh, where I come from is see your clinician, know your blood pressure, talk about that stress. What other helpful advice can we give to folks? I think some other helpful pieces of advice that we can um, give to people as far as, you know, making sure to know your blood pressure, manage your hypertension and your high blood pressure. Um, There's also some other factors that we have not mentioned, such as smoking and excessive drinking. Those can all impact hypertension as well. So, you know, trying to cut back or completely stop smoking would be the best. And Um, also reducing the amount of alcohol that you consume would be other great things that you can do. But I think overall, it's just making sure you know your blood pressure, you're talking to your doctor, and you're also um, eating healthy and um, exercising. Dr. Stoltz, any final comments before we wrap up? No, I think, uh, I think the key thing is that everybody needs to know that hypertension is the leading global risk factor for mortality, for dying, and for cardiovascular disease. And you absolutely have to know that blood pressure. And Danielle, is there a place people can go for more resources about hypertension? Yes. Um, the one we most commonly refer out to is just the American Heart Association. They have so many great educational, um, infographics, um, just overall information. So I think that would be the best, um, website or, you know, place to go. There's also the CDC and others, but 
the American heart is specifically focused on heart health and hypertension. All right. Thank you to both of you for being here today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Maria. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.